The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, good morning. I am Pastor Bill. Go ahead and, and open your Bibles to First uh, Peter chapter 3. Our text is verses 18 through uh, 22, but I, I'd like us to start our reading beginning at verse 13. While we discussed verses 13 through 17 last time I was up here, I I think it's going to be helpful for our context to to start back a little further back. I think you'll see why. As a reminder, if you don't have a Bible, please feel free to grab one off the back table. If you do not own a Bible, you can feel free to just take one of those, accept that as our, our gift to you. Well, before we read, let's open in a word of prayer. Father God, we love you. We are thankful for this time. We are thankful for this this body of believers that you have orchestrated to be here, coming alongside one another and encouraging one another. We are thankful for your word. Father, as we approach your word this morning, I pray that you, you help me to be faithful to the text to present your word with humility. Help each person in this room to have ears to hear your word this morning and the humility to receive it. We submit this time to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you are able, would you uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 22, God's word says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense To anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is God's word. You may be seated. 
You know, I have heard people at times say things like, you know, the Bible, it's really straightforward and it's easy to understand. And all you need is, is your Bible and the Holy Spirit and you can understand all of Scripture. And while that might be true for much of Scripture, my concern with that statement is that there are some really hard passages. There are parts of God's Word that can be hard to understand. This way of thinking, I fear, can create almost a a crisis of faith when we get to texts that are really hard to understand. I have heard of people who who read difficult texts of Scripture and, and they struggle to understand them and they assume, well, the Holy Spirit must not be in me then. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22 is a hard passage to understand. It's difficult to know what Peter is saying. And then we have the added task of trying to figure out, what do we do with it? There are two parts in this text that, at first glance, might might catch us off guard. And we can either get lost down down a rabbit trail trying to figure out what it means, or maybe we just blow right past them and don't consider them at all. But let us not forget what it says in 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Our study this morning provides a chance to apply the phrase that some of you may have heard before. That phrase says, God has made it such that the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. In other words, We don't always need to get bogged down with what is hard, but let's at least start with what is clear, what is obvious, what is plain. And that will likely be what is the main point that God intends us to see. We don't say that out of a spirit of laziness or an unwillingness to think. But instead, we say that in order to to prevent us from an undue preoccupation with a portion of Scripture that we may never be able to unravel to our satisfaction until we come face-to-face with the author, at which time we may no longer care. So this morning, we're going to just work our way through the text, and we'll get to those lines as we get to them. Because while there are parts of this passage that are hard to understand, verse 18 is one of the more encouraging verses in the Bible, in my opinion. I love 1 Peter 3.18. But first, let's just take a moment and let's, let's remember what, what has, has Peter said so far in this letter. Remember, this is one letter. So what was previously said is important to our understanding the text that we're in now. Peter has been talking about hope in this letter. This can be described as a letter of, of hope for a suffering people who are tempted to despair. Maybe that sounds like some of us. Peter starts the letter by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A living hope. And over the course of this letter, Peter has been unpacking that hope. 
And in the name of that hope, he's been calling these believers to, to press on, to endure suffering, to pursue particular forms of obedience. Last time we looked at verses 13 through 17, we saw that we saw that Peter has been calling on these believers to always be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks, who asks of what? Asks of the hope that is in you. In our passage this morning, Paul has given these believers, as well as us today, reasons for hope. So verse 17 is key to our understanding of this section of Scripture. Verse 17 once again says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Then we see verse 18. And it starts with the word for. And we can also understand that to be the word because. So the word for or because shows us that Peter is beginning to explain why it sometimes is God's will for us to suffer for doing what is right. So the paragraph begins as an explanation or a reason for the call to suffer as a Christian for doing what is right. We can have hope. It is better to suffer for doing good because... Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ also suffered. How did Christ suffer? Primarily, Christ suffered through his unjust beatings and then death on the cross. Christ suffered and Christ died once for sins. We are reminded of what it says in Hebrews 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins... He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Back in our text, in 1 Peter, it says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, once for all. Christ's death was final and all-sufficient to accomplish the forgiveness of all who believe in him. He does not have to ever offer another sacrifice. It was finished. It was all that was necessary to take away the guilt of my sins. The debt is paid in full. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous. Christ is righteous. And apart from Christ, we are unrighteous. Christ is without sin, without blemish. We are not. Christ is right with God. We are not. We need to be made right with God. There is a term called substitutionary atonement. In Romans 6.23, God's word says that 
For the wages of sin is death. Because of your sin, because of my sin, blood had to be shed. Romans 6.23 continues by saying, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You couldn't fully satisfy the penalty, and you couldn't just pick some random person to do it for you. In 2012, there was a newspaper article with the headline, Do the crime, pay someone else to do the time. The article tells the story from May of 2009 about a, a wealthy 20-year-old man in China who, dragged, who was drag racing through the streets when his vehicle, with his vehicle and killed a pedestrian at a crosswalk. The crime can be the death penalty for some. When they found out about his excessive speed over 70 miles per hour and his light and callous attitude afterwards, it caused an outcry in the city. So he was arrested, or so they thought. Later they found out that the man who was sentenced was not the criminal at all, but someone who had been paid to take the three-year prison sentence for him. The rich families in China do this to avoid justice. In China, this is so common that they call the person who does the time a, a substitute criminal or a replacement convict. They agree to a price, then do the time. People who are broke and or desperate are willing to make as little as, as $31 for every day that they pay for another person's crime. Jesus was not desperate or penniless, yet he became our substitute. For you, and he fully paid for your crimes. When we read lines in scripture like, The righteous for the unrighteous, it should cause us to consider what was actually accomplished on the cross. That Jesus made atonement for our sins. Christ died, and his death was substitutionary. He, he took my place. He stood under the wrath and penalty that I deserved, and he bore it for me. His death was utterly innocent. It was all for others' sins, not his own. Jesus made satisfaction for our debt, our enmity with God, and our guilt. He satisfied the ransom demand for our release from captivity to sin. Christ died. Blood was shed. He paid the penalty for our sins, and the righteousness of Christ was then imputed to us. We who are not righteous are now seen as righteous. Not from a, not from a standpoint of, of kind of pulling one over on God. It's not that we are Jacob tricking Isaac and that we are actually Esau. No, this is Christ, and he imputed his righteousness to us. What does imputed mean? Imputed means a giving or sharing of a quality, either good or bad. Sorry, a quality, either good or bad, to or with someone else, so that that quality is completely credited to them. The righteousness of Christ was imputed to us, was completely credited to us. At the center of Jesus' teaching was the assertion that he was doing this not for himself, but for us. 
to redeem us, to ransom us, to save us. You see, verse 18 isn't done. It keeps going. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Bring us to God. The good news of the gospel is not just that we are forgiven. The good news of the gospel is that we get God. That we can come before him. To see that that Jesus died just to, to pay the penalty of our sins is to only see part of the picture. Jesus didn't just die that we would be seen as not guilty. He did this that he might bring us to God. Bring us to God implies that that we need to be brought to him. He doesn't just, just point to God and say, well, there he is. Good luck. No, Jesus brings us to God. And how does this passage help us to have hope? It is finished. As believers in Jesus, the penalty has been paid. And now we have God. Now we have access to the Father. This is why verse 17 can say, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. We can combine that with what we see in other parts of Scripture. We can see this as, It is better to suffer for a little while, just here on earth, for doing good, if that should be God's will or God's plan, than for doing evil. Why? Because Christ died once for all. Being righteous has paid the penalty for us who are unrighteous. And now he is bringing us to God. So we have hope in our suffering. We have hope in this world. We have hope when life is hard because of Jesus. Because when we get to heaven... Heaven is more than just not having the troubles of this world. Heaven is more than just an escape from this world. Heaven is being with God. That is our hope. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The body of Christ was put to death. And rose again after three days. But his spirit is not dead. No, his spirit is alive. Now there is some controversy about this verse. And depending on your translation, some say made alive by the spirit, with a capital S. And others say made alive in the spirit, with a lowercase s. But what we do know is that while the flesh was dead and in the tomb, the spirit was very much alive. I think a danger of thinking about what Christ did on the cross as only forgiveness is that we are tempted to also think that when we sin, we have somehow fallen out of favor with God. Well, and then it's on us to earn our way back. Yeah, Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Do we believe that? In his commentary on the book of Romans, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, 
no condemnation. It says, there is therefore now no. Therefore now no. What important words they are. The words remind us of our position now as Christians. Look at the word no. No condemnation. What a statement. No is a little word of two letters, but are we aware of its full meaning? It is entire. It is complete. It is absolute. In other words, Paul is saying that a Christian is a person who has been taken entirely outside the realm of any possible or conceivable condemnation. The Christian has finished with the realm of condemnation. He has been taken right out of it. He has nothing more to do with it. There is no condemnation to the Christian. Now and never can be. As you realize that, not only is the Christian not in a state of condemnation now, he never can be. It is impossible. He continues on and says, There are many who misunderstand this. They seem to think of the Christian as a man who, if he confesses his sin and asks for forgiveness, is forgiven. And at that moment, he is not under condemnation. But then, if he should sin again, he is back once more under condemnation. Then he repents and confesses his sin again and asks for pardon, and he is cleansed once more. So to them, the Christian is a man who is constantly passing from one state to the other, back and forth, condemned, not condemned. Now that, according to the Apostle, is a wholly mistaken notion and a complete failure to understand the position. The Christian is a man who can never be condemned. He can never come into a state of condemnation again. No condemnation. The Apostle is not talking about his experience, but about his position, his standing, his status. He is in a position in which, being justified, he can never again come under condemnation. That is the meaning of the word no. It means never. Again, I, I love verse 18. It is the encouraging reminder that by our nature, we are unworthy of God. We are unrighteous. Therefore, we are unfit for heaven. And we are unable to rectify our circumstances on our own. But Jesus died. Paid the penalty that he might bring us to God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That is why we can sing songs like we did just a little bit ago. What love can remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Well, now let's look at verses 19 through 20. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. 
Well, there you go. That passage is pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? That's easy to understand. No. As Martin Luther said, this is a strange text, and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the Apostle meant. Or Charles Spurgeon said, this passage nobody understands, though some think they do. I like it. It says, it is for our good to be made to feel that we do not know everything. The point that is clear is that as Jesus suffered, though innocent, we also must be willing to suffer at the hands of the ungodly. No matter what your view of this passage is, no matter what you understand it to me, be comforted that your view is in the minority. Because there is no majority view of what this passage means. Scholars and theologians have debated the meaning of this passage, and in the end, as Luther said, we're just not sure what Peter meant. We have been reciting the Apostles' Creed as we gather together on Sunday mornings. When we first started, a a few of you objected to the word Catholic in the Creed. There was this connection to, to Roman Catholic, and so you find the word Catholic, which means universal, That is, there's one church across all times, places, and peoples. And some of you find that word to be problematic. And I'll be honest, I don't find it to be problematic at all. In fact, personally, I love it. Because with that right understanding, or that right definition of the word, as we're going through the book of Acts with Pastor Brian, I am reminded that we are connected. That there is one church, and that early church in Acts... Or, or the church that Peter is talking to in First Peter, we're connected to them. Those are our brothers and sisters. I love that reminder. But it's funny to me because, again, some people, not all, but some take issue with the word Catholic. But before that, there's a much bigger, bigger question mark in my mind. It says that Jesus was crucified died and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. I don't know. That feels like a section to have a much bigger issue with. Like, what? Jesus descended into hell? Well, our passage this morning is said to be where they get that from. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So Jesus went and proclaimed, or, or preached to the spirits in prison. What spirits? What prison? And even an understanding of when is helpful. Okay, so, so what do we do with this? First, I have to tell you that, that we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. In large part because we just, frankly, don't really know what it means. But also because I don't want us to get lost in this verse and not see, not see it as part of what Peter is saying in verses 18 through 22 as a whole. Now to say that we are not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning is not the same thing as my saying it's not worth spending a lot of time on it. If you are so inclined, I, I encourage you to, to do some reading and some studying on this passage. I have spent a lot of time reading and trying to figure it out, and I, I'd love to talk to you about it when you're done. Now, depending on who you read, some will say that there are three main views of this text. 
Others say that there are four main views of this text. According to the Reformation Study Bible, there are five main views of this text. I think you see why it gets confusing. And these aren't even all five that I read over the last week or two. All right, so let's just quickly take a look at this list of five views, and then I'll give a a short explanation. Uh, View number one. The spirits in prison are the people to whom Christ preached during his earthly ministry, for his work involved proclaiming liberty to the captives. Point number two, or option number two. Christ, by the Holy Spirit, preached through Noah to the people before the flood. Noah called them to repentance, but they disobeyed and are now imprisoned. The point of Peter's argument would then be that as God vindicated Noah then by sending the judgment Noah proclaimed, he will vindicate Christians when he judges the world according to the Christian proclamation. This view also looks at 1 Peter 1, 10 through 11, which says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So when those who hold this view say that Christ, by the Holy Spirit, preached through Noah, they are considering this verse that describes the Spirit of Christ in them. View 3, Christ preached in the short interval between his death and resurrection during a descent into hell. It is said that Christ announced his victory to the spirits of Noah's wicked contemporaries confined in the realm of the dead. Point 4, A similar idea is that during the same interval, Christ proclaimed his victory to fallen angels, often identified with the sons of God in Genesis 6, in their place of confinement. View 5, Christ proclaimed proclaimed his victory to fallen angels after the resurrection, at the time of his ascension into heaven. The point of the last three interpretations is that just as Jesus was vindicated, so Christians will be vindicated. Okay, so which one do you think it is? Well, that was a lot, wasn't it? You'd have to spend three days just reading those five options and then go into figuring out which one you you think it is. Now, this is a hard section of Scripture. So what do we do with this? Again, the, the Apostles' Creed, which is not Scripture, so we have to view it in its right place, where it says that he ascended into hell. Well, that phrasing is not in the earliest manuscripts of the creed, indicating that it's possible that that was added later. Its absence from the early manuscripts is why many churches put an asterisk next to it. John Calvin, he believed that it was suitable to say in our confession of faith that Jesus descended into into hell. However, he suggested that the order or the sequence of the phrase be changed this way that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, descended into hell, dead, and buried. Calvin argued that there was a real descent into hell, but that it did not take place after Jesus' death, or between his death and resurrection, but but on the cross instead. Calvin and, and others would not speak of a later descent or a descent between death and the resurrection because at the end of his time on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. 
He used the word drawn from from commercial language of the day, indicating that the, the final payment had been made. Since there was no more satisfaction to render than that which was rendered on the cross, there was no need for Jesus to experience any further punishment. Throughout the course of church history, many people have taught that Jesus' spirit descended into hell after his death on the cross. Based on this idea on Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, as well as our text in 1 Peter. Most of those who have taught that Jesus' spirit went to hell after his death have said that he went there to proclaim judgment to sinners and or rescue the saints of the Old Testament who were said to be in what's called limbo. Today, many of the heretical word of faith movement teach that the crucifixion was actually insufficient to atone for our sins and that Jesus had to suffer three days in torment of hell. All right, so what do I think? Well, I see this text kind of as a combination of the first two of that list of five, but mainly I would tend to lean toward point two. It's my opinion that considering all of Scripture... I do not subscribe to the view that Jesus' spirit went to hell after he died. But I also can't say for sure that that's not what happened. I land where I do because Jesus told the repentant thief on the cross that he would be with Christ in paradise on the same day of their crucifixion. When I study Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, it doesn't say that Jesus descended into hell. Paul more likely is creating a comparison between heaven and earth, or it may mean only that Christ descended just into the grave, as it just says lower regions. Again, 1 Peter, I think, likely refers to the the Son of God preaching by the Holy Spirit through Noah to the people of Noah's day. Though I think it could also include the preaching that Jesus did during his time on his ministry on earth. Jesus finished his atoning work on the cross. The New Testament speaks of propitiation, the turning away of the Lord's wrath, only in relation to Jesus shedding his blood on the cross. Not to mention, as Calvin said, Jesus' last words on the cross were, it is finished. He saw his work as complete, and then he died. Again, to be clear, I could be wrong. It could be a literal descent into hell, and that would not change my understanding of verses 18 through 22 as a whole. I think the point here is that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that was with Noah during his time, and it's the same spirit that saves us today. That we can see the work of the spirit over time, and thus we can have hope. We struggle with the difficulty of understanding Peter's teaching about Jesus Peter's teaching about Jesus' preaching to the lost spirits in prison. But we need to hold a couple of things firmly. First is that no matter how we interpret this text, it's clear to us from Scripture that everything that was required of Christ to affect our, redem- our redemption was in fact performed. Second, whether Peter was referring to the people who were held captive and were walking around Israel during Jesus' earthly ministry, people who were in limbo, which is a Catholic view, or people in this present age. We all we know that all of us, apart from the work of Christ, are indeed lost souls and lost spirits. We are in this kind of 
imprisonment. And the only one who has the power within himself to release people from that kind of captivity is Christ. And he does that through the same power, the power of the Holy Spirit, by which his body in the tomb was raised from the dead. So he, with the Holy Spirit, raises us from the dead and delivers us from captivity. That is the key to this text. It is the same Spirit. All right, well, now let's look at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. We have also been talking a lot about baptism over the past few weeks. We have talked about that there are disagreements about baptism amongst believers. One of those, one of those being whether you believe in, in paedo-baptism or credo-baptism, or to say it another way, infant baptism or believer baptism. We have said that there are differing views on this, but one thing that we have said that we do not differ on is that baptism is not salvific. It does not save you. Yet, what does our text say in verse 21? Darn it. (laughs) Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Wait, what? Baptism saves you. Well, what does it say? It says, baptism, which corresponds to this, which corresponds to what? The floodwaters that brought judgment on the world in the Noah's day reminds Peter of Christian baptism. So verse 21 and the corresponding to that, to the, to the flood, baptism now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So verse 18 said that Christ died for sins and brought us to God. In other words, Christ saves us. 1 Peter 1.3 that we read earlier says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the question is, who is us? Who does Christ's death actually save? That's what verse 21 answers. It seems to say those who are baptized. But Peter knows that this will be misunderstood if he does not qualify it. So when he says, baptism now saves you, he very quickly adds, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Baptism may cleanse the body, but it is not why he says it saves It saves for one reason. It's an expression of faith. It's an appeal of faith. I find the words of Derek Thomas helpful here. He said, Now, what is baptism? Baptism is a sign and seal, not of faith, but to faith of the gospel. It's a sign and seal to faith of regeneration. It's a sign and seal to faith of the assurance of salvation. It's a sign and seal to faith that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's a sign and seal to faith of our election, our eventual homecoming to glory. 
So it's not that baptism, it's not baptism that saves, it's what baptism represents, namely faith and repentance and adoption, regeneration, not in that order. Now, I think how he continues, now I think how the reformers and the Westminster divines understood what Peter is doing here in similar language about Jesus and the supper. This is my body, this is my blood. It's a sacramental union that the one is so closely identified with the other that, as, as it says, the effects of the one are attributed to the other. We have come through the waters of baptism. We have passed through death and judgment. We have been buried with Christ and we have risen with him. We have passed from death to life. Judgment is past. The suffering we are experiencing cannot be the condemnation of God. That has already been experienced for us by Christ. It stands as a constant reminder that the worst suffering has been averted. Christ took it for us. We will never have to come into judgment. There is now no condemnation. We have already died that death in Christ and been raised in him. Therefore, our present suffering is not the wrath of God, but the loving discipline of our Father and the preparation for glory. In a word, without Christ, his death, his resurrection, the imputation of his righteousness to us, and the imputation of our guilt to him on the cross, without those things, baptism would be utterly worthless. The water that saved Noah and his family saved them because they put their trust in the promises of God. And for those who did not, the same water was the occasion of their utter destruction. Lastly, verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So finally, our hope is in the fact that Christ is victorious, is seated at the right hand of God, and that all things are subjected to him. Earlier in this letter, Peter was talking about submission and the authorities that we are to submit to. And here, he is reminding us that everything, even those authorities, are subjected to him. So when we suffer for doing good, we rest in the hope that Christ has already won. Our text, one more time, says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Peter has already described how the mind of Christ galvanizes us for courageous living. We fear God, not humanity. We commit to make God's grace visible. 
In troubles, we await vindication and trust ourselves to God who judges justly. Because Jesus conquered death, nothing can keep us from joining him at God's right hand. We lay hold of God's power by the faith that unites us to him, so his character and his deeds become ours. Naturally, all of this is easier said than done. We need the means of grace to lay hold of the courage that is ours. Prayer, Christian community, praise alone and in public worship, meditation, repentance, and the right use of the sacraments, including baptism. Whatever we find uncertain in life, or in the message of 1 Peter 3, this should be clear. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Now he has gone into heaven and is at the right hand, is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you will use these words, which our minds can struggle to understand. But help us to cling to what is clear. Help us to rejoice in the gospel. Father, we submit ourselves to the teaching of this text. Our hearts are filled with hope to be reminded that all things are now subject to to Jesus, encourages us. Father, we believe what your word says, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. To you be the glory.